is only good to us. I'm going to start in the first chapter. So if you join me, and again, if you'd like some of those blank pages to write notes, raise your hand. The ushers will hand that to you, and I apologize once again for not getting notes out ahead of time due to being sick. I was reading a story this past week about an individual who... uh, who decided to leave Minneapolis and this individual was going down to Florida. This couple was going to go down there for vacation. The husband left the day before the wife and he got down to the airport, got settled in at the hotel and he wanted to give a real quick note to his wife, send her an email and say, hey, listen, I've made it, I've arrived, everything is going great. So he's typing things out, but when he sent it off, he didn't realize that he had one letter missing from the email address. So instead of going to Minneapolis, the letter went to Houston. When it arrived in Houston, it arrived at a home where they had a death in that home. What had happened is the husband had died. The wife just came home that afternoon from the funeral service with her immediate family. And she decided to take a few moments in her grief to read the condolences that were coming in over the Internet. So she sat down and she started reading a number of them. And she came to this letter, this email that came from Florida that wasn't intended for her. And when she read it, she passed out. Her son came running in and was trying to revive her. And when he read the email, he understood what had happened. It went this way. To my loving wife. Remember, her husband's just been buried. From your departed husband. I've arrived. I have just arrived and been checked in. Everything went very smoothly after my departure. I also verified that everything has been arranged for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Sigh and hope your journey is as uneventful as mine. And then your hobby, P.S., it sure is hot down here. <laughs> Not the message she was looking for. Okay. Sometimes messages get miscommunicated. Sometimes they go the wrong direction. I want to make sure that what we've been talking about and the message we've been trying to communicate since last mid-May when we started this series, I want to make sure it gets the right direction. And I want to clarify, make sure that if there's somebody who isn't sure exactly what we were saying, I want to help them out and clarify. Last week, Pastor Art told me that he was really appreciative of something I said in the message last week. It had nothing to do with the theology. It had nothing to do with the Bible. It had to do when I made the comment that in letters when they're being sent, sometimes they get zip codes and they go to different directions. Like in our town, 4-2 means it's south. 4-6 means... He said, thank you. I never realized where's the demarcation for those zip codes. I just thought they were randomly chosen. So, brother, I am so helpful that I helped you out by determining, you know, that helping you to understand 422 has another purpose in our town. So, for art's sake and anybody else who got Joe Brong, okay, just take time this morning. Let's, Let's reiterate. Let's go back and in a quick synopsis of the book, Let's, let's make sure we get the right, the right message from the book. And there are several different messages. Which one's the most important? I don't know. But I can share with you just several that stand out to me as we've been studying. Number one stood out from the very beginning. Godly faith will always be challenged. Godly faith. People with godly faith will 
always run into tragic situations, difficult trials will come into your life. We've already discovered and we looked at it, but if you're visiting with us this morning, let's reiterate this. Go to chapter 1, verse 1. Job truly was a godly man. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. We talked about verse 5, how that there was days of their feasting, of his children's feasting, that he sent and sanctified them, rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that one of my sons have sinned and cursed God. Thus did Job continue, a very godly parent, praying and advocating for his children. We read how God speaks about him in verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect, upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. And God repeats this again in chapter 2, talking about how great he is. And yet, for all of his godliness, he all of a sudden suffers an onslaught, a challenge. First of all, it comes from Satan. Satan in heaven, if you understand the story, Satan accuses Job of only serving God for one reason. The only reason he's faithful to you, God, he's godly, is, as mentioned in verse 9 through 11, is that you, God, you bless him. You've given him a family. You've given him possessions. You've given him good health. Take that away and he'll curse you, is the accusation, is the attack. And so God allows Satan to attack him, to all of a sudden physically afflict him to come in a, in a way of what we're going to call some unexpected events. That Job got up this one day and he didn't plan this. He didn't think this was going to happen. But all of a sudden, as, jo- as Satan is orchestrating events that are taking place, unexpected events, Job is afflicted. He is attacked in just a phenomenal way. All of a sudden, his herds are all taken away, some by fire, some by the invaders that come through the territory. And then the story goes on that his, uh, his crops are destroyed. In an agrarian farming community, he's lost everything. And then on top of that, his ten children are having a birthday party at one of the kids' homes, and his ten adult children are killed because a tornado comes through, collapses the building. In one day, he suffered a loss of loved ones, multiple losses. He lost of his prestige, his possessions, everything in his life, to the point that he ends up in an ash heap. He ends up out in the city dump, and there he is afflicted and agonizing. He doesn't even have, as we've already talked about, he doesn't have anything to give to the poor to support those who were looking to him for support, the widows, the families of his servants who were killed. And then what happens? He's afflicted again. He's afflicted in this case by, it comes this time, by an attack of sickness. You go to chapter 2. Satan realizes that he said Job would curse God. He's wrong. Job has not cursed God. And so Job, uh, Satan goes back and says to God, he says, the reason he's not cursing you is you haven't let me touch his body. I've taken his possessions, his bank account, but let me give him bad health and he'll curse you. And God tells him, go ahead. You can afflict him with a physical illness and it is severe. Don't take his life, but all of a sudden, these are just a few of the symptoms of what happens. And they last for weeks, for apparently for months. And he is in great agony. He is in great torment. And on top of that, he all of a sudden is challenged by someone who is exhausted. Somebody who has reached their limits. His wife. She's gone through the same trial. She's buried the same ten children. She is experiencing the financial collapse. 
She is experiencing the widows and the orphans of the slaves and the workers and the servants coming and saying, what's next? She is destitute as well as Job at this point. And on top of that, she is watching her husband who is looking like he's dying. But he isn't. He's just in terrible agony and pain and he is so uncomfortable and he is beyond any help she can give. The doctors can't relieve it. This is an affliction by Satan and it is severe. And so she says to him, and I don't think she's saying it in a way of that she hates her husband. I think she's saying it personally in a way that she cares for her husband and she basically wants him to be done with his suffering. Because she is, have you ever been there? Have you ever seen a loved one in agony and pain and you don't know what to pray, but you pray, Lord, take them home. And that's what she basically is saying when she says to him, and we read about it in chapter 2, where she says to Job, she says, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. She knows this is allowed by God. And she's just saying, this could end your miseries, your sorrows. And Job has this. He's got unexplained events. He's got an enemy attacking that he doesn't even know it's from Satan. He doesn't understand why, why this is happening, why God would allow this. And, and on top of it, you know, his wife is saying, you've, you've had enough, be done with it. Does this ever happen today? Do believers, godly believers, do they ever suffer trials and tribulations today? We've already talked about this. We've already said that according to the New Testament, it says all who live godly will suffer some form of persecution. There will be pressures. There will be adversities. James wrote to us in this age and day, when you fall into diverse temptations, not if, we read that Jesus has said, I say unto you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. We understand that it is true, godly people will have trials and sufferings, but they do not mean, they do not mean that you are necessarily away from the Lord. Maybe, maybe in some cases, but not every trial is discipline, is chastisement. It doesn't mean that you're away from the Lord, and it certainly doesn't mean that the Lord is gone away from you. So one principle a really critical principle has been that we've seen that godly faith will be challenged. Number two principle that comes from the book. Godly faith is based upon God's character. Godly faith will remain based upon God's character. Let, let's highlight what we're talking about. We have faith and we live by faith not because our circumstances are good. We are to have faith and live by faith not because we're comfortable. We have retirement. We have homes. We have access to the internet. Therefore, we're going to serve God and come and worship on a Sunday morning because he's given us these things. If that is why you worship, then you are doing exactly what Satan said would happen to some people. Satan said there are people he thought Job was one, who worship just because their circumstances, their comfort is provided, take it away, and they'll stop serving. Real godly faith, real godly faith is staying upon the, the principles of who God is and what he is, not what he does for us. We retain our faith because of who God is and what he is. That's what Job does. 
Job maintains that he will serve God despite what happens around him. Go to chapter 1. Look at the last couple of verses. When Job has suffered all this, he makes this comment. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return hither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. When his wife said, curse God and die. Look at chapter, 10, chapter 2, verse 10. He said unto her, you speak as one of the foolish women spoke. This, this is below you. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall not we receive... The word for evil, by the way, is hardships. It's not something morally evil. The word in the Hebrew means a trial, a trouble, a difficulty. And it has nothing to do with something that is sinful and bad. So he's making this comment. He is showing us this illustration that godly faith will be challenged. Godly faith is based on God's character. What... Exactly do we mean by that? Number three. Number three, godly faith believes God is in control. It believes that God is always in control. That's, uh, that's exactly what's happening in what he's mentioned. That, and if you notice what we read in verse chapter 1, verses 21, 22, chapter 2, verse 10, Job believed that all of this that was happening to him came from God. He thought and knew that God was ultimately in charge. His wife thought everything that was happening was by God's will, by God's approval. And they were right. They were right because as you go through the story, God's control is not only portrayed in their understanding, but when we see and go back and look at what's happening in heaven, what about the conversation that Satan and God had? It is very evident. It is very clear that Satan had to give account to God. Look at chapter 1, where Satan first shows up in verse 6. There was a day when the angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Satan's going to have to give account to God. God is ultimately in charge. When, when Satan is suggesting God take away his health, Watch where the limitations come. God says to Satan in verse 12, He said, Behold, all that he has, all that Job possesses, is in your power. Only upon him put not your forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God limited Satan in what he could do. You can't touch Job personally. In, uh, later in chapter 2, when he's taken the possessions and Job is remaining faithful, and Satan says, Take away his health. Look what happens in chapter 2. We jump down into verse 6. After Satan suggests, take away his good health, he'll curse you. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but save his life. God put restrictions, limits upon Satan. Satan's not boundless. He has parameters that God has set. God is ultimately in control. If you were with us during the time that we went through chapters 38 through 40, let me summarize what happens in those chapters. Job and his friends have been talking throughout the whole book. Why is this happening to me? And they give suggestions. All of a sudden, at the end of the book, God shows up. God shows up in a form of a tornado, a great wind, a whirlwind. And God speaks from that whirlwind. And when the Lord starts speaking, his theme, his message is... Not to tell Job, this is why it happened. Satan made me do it. He doesn't say that because Satan didn't make him do it. But what he does explain is who God is and what he is. And he basically is telling Job through this whole section, it's real simple. He's telling Job this thought, I'm in charge of all things. He takes Job on a universal tour 
a tour of the geography of the earth, if you recall, a tour of the stars and the solar system. And God just basically says, Job, were you there when I was laying the foundations? Were you there when I put the stars in space? And none of us were. Job wasn't. No, God didn't need anybody's counsel. God is saying, I did this all by myself. I'm in control. Then he takes them on a two-chapter journey of the animal kingdom. And he says, Job, do you even know what, you know, the mountain, the mountain goats, do you even know how long it takes for them in their gestation period for birthing a, a, a kid? And he talks about, do you know why the ostrich does what it does? Do you know why the horse acts the way it does? Do you know where the hawk is in its nest on the mountain that nobody can see? I do. I see it. I'm in control of the animals. And God makes it very clear. I'm in charge. I'm in control. That is the overriding theme of the book, that God is sovereign. And at the end of the book, Job makes a comment in chapter 42. If you haven't marked it, you may want to mark it. He says, I know that you can do everything and no thought can be holden from you. If you remember when we talked about this in the original language, that no thought can be holden is expressed this way. Whatever you have determined cannot be altered cannot be taken away, cannot be kept from you. You are in total control. That's where Job ends up. And he is still, at that moment that he says it, in his agony. He is still without any children. He is still a broken, broken man. But he has realized God is sovereign. God can do anything he chooses to do. And that's the probably, if you're going to pick an overriding theme, that's it. That's the theme of the book. By the way, Job isn't the only book that highlights this. If you were to do a complete Bible study on the greatness of God, you would have to see. There are multiple passages that talk about you and I making plans, having intents of what we're going to do this week, where we're going to spend New Year's, how we're going to do it, who's coming over, what we're going to do for the all-nighter, what we're going to do for the college and career get-together, what we're going to do with families, We can devise the way, but it's the Lord that directs the steps. You and I, we can have our goings and our determinations, but God ultimately has the final say. That's why in the book of James, he writes and he says, we ought to say, and he's talking to business people who say, we're going to go and we're going to buy here, we're going to go buy sell over there. And he says, hey, listen, you make these plans, and there's nothing wrong with making plans, but the reality is, if the Lord wills, we shall live. We can pause on that for a moment. Which one of us knows we're going to live until next Sunday? We don't. Who does know if we're going to live till next Sunday? The Lord. None of us even knows. We don't even know what's going to happen on the morrow. We have no clue. But God does. God knows and he says that we ought to, we ought to acknowledge that. The greatest king in human history, apparently. The gold replica of the one who was the, the golden head. He made this comment. When Nebuchadnezzar is talking about how God is so mighty, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he does according to his will. This is a man who thinks he is a God himself. This is a man who says, I have life and death control over everybody. He's making the admission. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stop him can stay his hand and say unto him, who are you? What are you doing? You know, explain yourself. (laughs) It is really clear in scriptures 
that God is able to do anything he chooses to do because nothing is impossible with God. That phrase in itself shows up four times in scriptures. You have it in the book of Jeremiah on two occasions. You have it in the Gospel of Luke on two occasions. Where in the Gospel of Luke it comes up when, when Mary says, how can I have a child? I've never known a man. Nothing's impossible with God. When the disciples are saying, well, wait a minute. If it's so hard for a, a rich man to go through, get into salvation like a camel through the eye gate, then how, who can be saved? And he says, with God, nothing's impossible. I can even save those who are self-made individuals. I can save anybody. Nothing's impossible. It brings us to this thought. We recognize God is in control. Therefore, we answer to God for what we do. He doesn't answer to us for what he does. That's the lesson of Job. There's also another thought that comes out about God's character, that, that our godly faith is based in the character of God. We, we recognize not only is he in control, but what he does is always correct. He is not always good. He is always accurate. God never sins. God never chooses to do wrong. He's never unrighteous in anything that he does. Job said this. Job knew this, and he got it right in the very beginning. We already read the passage where Job said, shall we, receive, shall we not receive good from the Lord and then also some troubles? In other words, this isn't something that, that God has made a mistake in allowing us to lose our children. This is, uh, this, this is for mature believers. This is a significant thought. This is a profound step of faith. If God takes a member of our family, God has not made a mistake. If God takes away our health, God has not made a mistake. If God takes away our finances, God has not made a mistake. God makes no mistakes. And godly faith realizes, I believe this, I hold to this truth, that God is always correct in what he does. Now, I remind you, that Job did start questioning as the book unfolds. He started wondering, did you make a mistake? Did you? And, and God, therefore, I want to sue you. And there's a whole section of the book that we talked about. He wants to take God to court. He wants to sue God. He mentions it several times. I want to call you into court and have you answer, why are you allowing me to suffer? And surely, I don't deserve this suffering. And as a result, God shows up in the tornado. God talks to him. And one of the first words out of God's mouth in chapter 42, verse 8. We looked at this. You can look it up in your verse right now. And you can see and mark it. Where God says, would you disannul my judgments? Literally, would you nullify the decisions I have made in your life? Would you, would you say that they were wrong? And he goes on. He makes this next statement. He says, will you accuse me of doing wrong? Do you really, Job, do you really think that I can be sued for negligence? Do you really think that you could try me for abuse? And the answer in the Hebrew, when he asks this question, he says, will you condemn me? The answer is, you dare not. And Job realizes, Job says at that moment, he says, the things that I have uttered, I understood not. And he has just said before that, I'm putting a hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say anything more because I said too much. And then after that, he says, I uttered, I understood not. I abhor and I repent of what I had thought even momentarily. 
because I had begun to doubt whether God is correct in what he does. And my conclusion is, he is. God is in control. God is always correct. God makes no mistakes. In thinking about having faith that is fixed upon God's character, let's add this. God always cares. God always cares. That's why I chose the song for this morning. That idea that, you know, that, that our Lord, he cares for us. He always cares for us. That's the theme of Job. That's a major message. That God is a compassionate God. Oh, you read Job and you say, how can he be compassionate? How can he let somebody suffer so very much? Okay? The sovereign God is always very compassionate. That's when he took him on the journey of the universe. God cares so much, he watches the raindrops. He determines where it rains. He determines where it'll snow. He determines where there's going to be frost. And you and I say, please God, don't determine that for us here. But God's in control of the weather, not the weatherman. God is, God cares about the universe. If he didn't care, things wouldn't continue to exist as they should. Colossians talks about God by his greatness has not only created, but he is keeping this earth working the way it should so that we can benefit and experience God's mercy. You know God could take the oxygen out of the air. Why does he leave it there? Because he cares for us. God could let gravity be erased. Why does he keep it in control? Because he cares for us. God cares. And you say, well, I don't know about that. Godly faith is based upon God's character. Even the most severe trials you go through, you can maintain faith, and you will, if you remember, God is in control. God makes no mistakes. He is always correct, and God cares for me. That's where Job ends up. God takes him through the journey on the animals, remember? And he says, I care for the lion. I care for the goat. I care for the dumb, the dumb donkeys. He talks about these jackasses that are out in the wilderness. He says, who provides them their food? Not us, not people. They don't take the, the crops out. God does. God cares. Jesus built upon that when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And while he's preaching, Jesus pointed to the birds, to the flowers. And he made the comment, he says, behold the fowls of the air. He says, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, they don't work. But your heavenly Father, he provides for them. Are you not much better than they? His point is this. If God cares for the simplest of creatures, then truly God cares for you and me. He cares. So in the middle of all those challenges and conflicts, Job is saying, even though I had my moments where I started to, started to crack a little bit, I didn't crumble because I believed this. Godly faith is based in God's character, that God is in control, that God is always correct, that God cares for me. God cares so much for Job that he allowed a severe trial to come to make Job a better Christian, a better servant. Go to chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 10. One of the key verses in the entire book. Job chapter 23, verse 10. If you did not mark it, you must. In fact, over the next couple of weeks, this is going to be our memory verses. 
Job chapter 23, verse 10. He knoweth the way that I take. And when he has tried me, what's it say? I shall come. I'm going to be improved. I'm going to be better. With the loss of my children, with the loss of my possessions, with the loss of my health, God is in control. God is correct. God cares because God is molding me. God is more concerned about my growth than my comfort. God is more concerned about my character spiritually than my conveniences. And the same is true for you and me. That God works in such a way that he is trying to help us to come forth as gold. That leads me to another major lesson from this book. Godly faith will always be cultivated. If you have faith, godly faith, mark this down. It's going to be challenged. You're going to be fixed on the character of God, but God will be working in such a way to cultivate your faith, to improve it, to, uh, to make it stronger and better. It happens in Job's life. At the end of the story, righteous Job's, Job becomes more righteous. He comes forth as gold. The idea he's improved. That's why Job concludes the book this way. He says, I have heard of you in the past. I have heard, but now I am hearing with my own ears. Now my eye sees you. Now I know you better than I have ever known you before. And Job is concluding the book by saying, I am closer to the Lord than I was when I was raising the ten kids, when I was doing the business, when I was taking care of the servants, when I was doing all those things that aren't evil to do. But through this suffering, through this trial, it brought me closer to the Lord God Almighty than I have ever been before. Those lonely moments when I was on the ash heap, I got closer to the Lord than I had ever gotten close to Him. I have seen with my eyes, I have heard with my ears, and now I have benefited from the trials. By the way, does this ever happen now? If, if we jump into the New Testament... Is it not true that we read, count it all joy when you fall into trials? Why? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. It improves you. Let patience have her maturing work, that you may become perfect or complete, wanting nothing. We read elsewhere where we glory in tribulations, Paul writes, knowing that tribulation works patience, patience works experience, experience works hope. Hope makes us not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We become closer to Him. We become more, more dependent upon Him. He, be, he becomes more real to us. We read where Jesus made these comments, I am the vine, you are the branches. He said, I am the true vine, my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, He takes away. Okay, we understand discipline. But every branch that bears fruit, He purges it that it may bring forth you're godly. You're serving the Lord. There's going to be challenges. Those challenges are to cultivate you to become a stronger believer. You will only become a stronger believer if your godly faith is based upon God's character. That you believe and hold fast that God is in control. God is always correct. And God always cares. Cares enough that he is building me, he is maturing me, he is cultivating me. Another truth. Number seven. Godly faith will always be compensated. It will always be compensated. 
That's the debate of the book. That's the discussion between Job and his friends. That's what the bulk of the book is doing where men are discussing why, oh why, do the, does, when, when will God judge the wicked? Why do some wicked prosper? Some are saying the wicked never prosper. When do the righteous get their rewards? That, that's the, the human understanding and argument through the book. And they're saying, okay, basically the, the conclusion is, when will we be rewarded? And Job's friends say, well, you're being rewarded because you've got evil in your life. And Job is saying, I've got no evil, I've got, and which God will confirm. But Job is asking the question, when will I be rewarded? When will this happen? And the answer, the answer that you and I as godly folk, living by scripture, the answer of when will we be rewarded is this. When God chooses to do so. It could be in this life. It may never be in this life. It could be that some of you are rewarded with more possessions. Some of you are rewarded with less possessions. Some of you say, you know, we, I, God's rewarding me with, with really good health. That's great. Some of you, he's not rewarded with really good health. But this is true. He will reward you when he chooses to. And it definitely will happen for sure in the next life. But in this life, we have no guarantee of it. We only have the guarantee he will reward us when he chooses to. But he will reward us. In fact, there are multiple passages of scriptures that talks about it. Like in Job's case, Job was faithful. We understand that. Remind ourselves, just, just in this story. Remind ourselves that he had moments where he said, God, I, I would like to sue you if I could. But overall, here's the man that cracked, but he didn't crumble. In all this, he sinned not. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. He shall be my salvation. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. He said, God said of him, You have not spoken to me that which is right, as my servant Job has said that to, uh, to the three counselors on a couple occasions. He said to them that Job has maintained. Job has been faithful to me. So what does Job get? God chooses to reward him at the end of his life, in this life. God, all of a sudden, as we looked at last week, he's compensated. All of a sudden, he's vindicated before his accusers. They're told, bring, you've got to bring sacrifice and have Job pray for you so you have forgiveness for what you've accused him. Job's rewarded physically. His illness is taken away. And he's restored to good health. Good enough health that he's able to all of a sudden run his businesses again. His businesses where every one of the items mentioned, twice as much comes back to him. And he's able to sire and raise ten more children. He's got good health, folk. He's restored in that sense. And God compensated him. To the point that all of a sudden he has publicly accepted his own kin. Come and they say, oh Job, you know, we are so glad that you are back on top to where you should be. The, the fact is, Job was rewarded in this life. We aren't promised that, but we are promised rewards. Compensation one day. There are multiple times that Jesus in parables gave the illustration, gave the story of how those who are faithful 
Well, one day in his future kingdom, in his future heaven on earth, he is going to reward them. Some with, with rulerships. Some with, uh, with uh, the opportunities to do greater service for him. He, he talks about how the chief shepherd, when he shall appear, he'll reward those who have labored and been faithful in ministry. That he's going to give them crowns. He talks about enduring temptations. If you endure and are faithful, that he's going to compensate with a crown of life to some of you for the way you've handled your trials. We talk about in Ephesians that in the ages to come, he might show exceeding riches of his grace towards us who are in Christ Jesus. We read about servants being faithful that one day he will sit them down to treat them to a feast. We read about how God says, I has not seen nor ear heard entered into the heart the things that God has prepared for those who love him. The fact is we will be compensated one day. This isn't, this isn't trickery. This isn't bribery. But we need to remain faithful now no matter what is happening. Be faithful to a God who's in control, a God who's correct, a God who cares. Can I give you another lesson? It is this. Godly faith can become a challenge, a good challenge to others. I, I don't want to close the book without reminding you and me that there's a reason why Job was written. Why is it? If I understand my Bible right, the Bible was included in this book so that the man of God may be perfectly furnished unto all good works. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That these things have happened, he writes to Corinthians, for our examples. Job, his story is given, not so we have all the answers, because we don't. Job didn't. We have the answer that God is sovereign, God will do what he can do, and chooses to do. But we conclude from the book of Job that, that you know what? We can make it through the trials if we have godly faith. We can look at the book of Job, we can say God's going to compensate us one day if we have godly faith. We look at the book of Job, we say we're going to be challenged and we need to fix our, our mind upon God Almighty. We are given the book of Job as an example for you and me to look and say, Job shows us that it can be done. In fact, what does James remind us? He says, think about all those prophets in the past. Think about those who were examples of suffering affliction. He writes about how they had patience how they endured. They were given for us. And in fact, he makes the comment, you have heard of the patience of Job and have seen of the end of the Lord. The Lord is gracious. King James says pitiful. I just want to make sure you understand pitiful means full of, full of pity. Gracious and of tender mercy. Job was written as an example, as a challenge to you and me. When we read this book, we're to be encouraged. We're to be challenged. And I think about Job and I say, thank God. Thank God for the story. And Job is a blessing. I don't know about you. This is just me. I have thoroughly enjoyed the study of the book of Job. I've never done it before. I have thoroughly enjoyed the last few months. Bored you out of your gourd. But I have really been blessed by studying this story. And I have to say, you know, he was an example. He's an encouragement. He's a challenge to me. And then I have to pause and say... That man who lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years 
His life speaks to me in 2020. What will my life speak to people around me if the Lord allows me to live to 2020? Job provides the challenge that you and I can endure trials and when we do, we can impact others. We can help others to grow. You will, by the way you respond to challenges, you will demonstrate to your children what godliness is. By you responding and enduring, you will lay out a path for your children, your grandchildren. You will help demonstrate for them how to endure life's greatest trials. By the way you respond in a godly response, you will be encouraging saints around you. You will be challenging the young adults. You'll be challenging the young couples. You'll be encouraging those of us who are older in age but going through difficulties. You will become a blessing to us. And this is a truism. Oftentimes, if you want to really be blessed, go and visit those who are suffering and living for the Lord. You go to be a blessing to them, I guarantee you're going to walk away and they'll have been a blessing to you. Are you that type of person? Did you respond this week when all of a sudden the car didn't start? Did you respond in a godly way? When all of a sudden you got bills this week on top of Christmas that you didn't expect, how did you act? How did you deal with that? Did you bless the Lord or did you start cursing Christianity? How do you respond when work doesn't turn out the way you want? When you wake up, you know, this week I already alluded to it, I tried to get out of bed. I fell. You know, and it was like, Lord, this is Christmas Day. Our family is together. There's seven grandchildren wrecking my house. I want to get out there and wreck it with them. And I can't even lift my head off the ground. And when I do, Deb, get the bucket. So minor. But even in those minor moments, do we bless I mean, what a good, good moment to say, God, thank you for balance most of the time. Thank you we don't live this way, where we're dizzy and lightheaded. Thank you for good health. Amen? Amen. So how do we respond? Do we challenge in a good way, or are we a challenge in a bad way that others have to put up with us? So I look at Job and I say, Job, you're such a blessing. But what I conclude is this. Job teaches me of all things that godly faith realizes we have but one major calling. We have one major goal in life. One major responsibility. And it shows up in chapter 42. Where God calls Job four different times, God says, my servant, my servant, my servant, my servant. When God puts it in perspective, God says, Job, this is your job. Serve me. Serve me. Your job wasn't to get riches. Your job isn't to have prosperity. Your job isn't to have lands and houses and lots of people working for you. That isn't your major calling. Now, I'm allowing you to have that, Job. I did in the past, and I'll let you do it again. But your major job is you're my servant. Your major job isn't just parenting. I'm going to let you have the blessing of 10 more kids at age, whatever you are, Job. Some suggest he's 100 years old. Okay, seven, between 70 and 100. I'm going to give you, your major job is serve me. 
serve me. Your major job isn't going to school. Though that's an important one for some of you. Your major job isn't you know, going up to Hershey or going you know, wherever your employer is. Your major, your major calling is to serve God. We are here for one purpose, to serve God. We are here for his pleasure, not for our own. We are created for the pleasure of God. We are allowed to live for the pleasure of God. That is, that is the message of Job. The, the, the whole story makes it very clear. God is in control, not us. We serve him, not he serves us. You know, in 2020, if we're going to live into that year, we've got to get this straight. We are the servants of a sovereign God, period. We serve him, not he serve us. He must increase. That's Job. Now, for me, for me, the thought is, okay, this is good. This is good. This is what I want to do. I want, no matter what happens in my life, I want to be serving you. No matter what I know about the future or the events or why things are happening, I just need to serve you. I need to serve you. My big question is, how do I do that? How do I do that? The book of Job tells us. Are you still at chapter 23, some of you? Watch what he says. He gives us the summary. He tells us the how. Job chapter 23, verse 10. He knows the way that I take. When he, is tr- when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's it. How do we know about God? His word. How do we serve him? His word. How do we, how do we bring glory to him? Following his word. Just simply what that song says, trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That should be our motto. This should be our theme for 2020. That we will serve him, the sovereign no matter what. No matter what. Now, how that service looks may differ for some of you. Lydia Harris writes about an event that happened in her family that her husband, who is a rather shy, unassuming individual, quiet individual, they've been married about this time, around 20-some years, and she writes about how they went to church. And they were challenged in church with the idea of let's do something more in this, this you know, next phase of our life. Let's do something more for the Lord. And the preacher was encouraging them to pray, to share the gospel, to do Bible studies, to do something, to be a witness, to talk about the glory of God. Your good works shine so that all may glorify the Lord. So be an impact, be an influence. So one day her shy, quiet husband came home and he says, you know that message we heard on Sunday has really pricked my heart. I'm going to do something in a few weeks, and I need your help. She says, well, what do you want me to help with? I want you to help print up on the computer flyers. And I'm going to put some flyers together, and I'm going to call for a prayer meeting at work. I'm going to call for all the Christians in this company that had like six, 700 employees. I'm going to call for, post this around in the bulletin boards, and I'm going to, on the National Day of Prayer and Fasting, I'm going to ask any of who are believers to join me out front at one of the areas off to the side of the front of the building, and we're going to have a prayer meeting. We'll get to know who the believers are. We can start praying together. We can maybe then maybe start some Bible studies and be able to influence others to come with our coworkers. And I want to be a witness. 
And to me, to start is, let's get some people praying about this, so I'm going to make these flyers. His wife said, well, you sure you're allowed? I already checked. And she's shocked that her husband, who's so quiet, would even think about this, number one. Number two, even have gone to his boss and asked if he can post these, these already. She's just, he's never done anything like this before. He's never even given out tracts. He's, he's just been, you know, the, the Christian fly on the wall. And now he's got this zeal that he's determined to do something more for the Lord. And so she helped him out. And while they were doing it, she says, um, what happens if nobody shows up? He said, are you kidding? Surely there's got to be lots of people in the company of six, 700. There's got to be other Christians who will show up. I can't imagine Christians not showing up. You know, there's got to be some others there. And if not, I guess that's okay too. So she says how he went and he came home those next couple weeks ahead of time. They're praying. Something that they've never done a lot of. They're praying together about his ministry. So the morning she says goodbye to him, he takes off. She goes to her workplace, but all day long she's praying. God, please, God, please help him, help him. Let it be at noontime, she's especially praying. Help it to have been a success. Her husband comes home at the end of the workday, and she is so curious. What happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? He goes, everything's okay. If it were me, I would have walked in the doors and said, it was fine. Okay, the fine covers everything. And she, she says, well, were there others there? He says, yeah. She says, how many? Three. And she says, well, do you know who they are? He says, yeah. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> she said, you were the only one? He says, no. He says, there was the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And I had a great time. He says, we're now praying together that others will join. I'm going to do this on a regular basis. Why? Because I'm esteeming your word more than what I think is essential and necessary in life. Your word is more important. That should be our goal this year. That this new year is a new you. That you, to the best of your ability, will serve God by following his word no matter what happens. Now, friend, for you to do that, you first of all have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to know that you're on your way to heaven. In a moment, we're going to be praying. But I'm having our staff go right now to that door over there. And they're going to wait there that during our prayer, if you're here this morning and you do not know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, then you can go and talk to one of those individuals in one of the rooms down that hallway. In a private moment, you can find out from the Bible what you need to do this morning to make sure you're going to heaven. I guarantee you it's not join this church. 